This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Today's episode, I'm so excited because I've wanted to connect with this guy for a really, really long time. And let me tell you why. Just before the new year, I sat with a friend of mine and I asked her casually, so what are your goals for 2019? And she said the usual things, you know, relationships, health. And then she said, and I got to figure out my finances, but I just don't know where to start. And so I'm so thrilled today that we have Ramit Sethi joining us on the Mind Valley podcast because my friend and all of you out there who are trying to figure out how to better manage your money for the long term, for your future, you want to be listening to this. Ramit Sethi is the author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich, which hosts over 1 million readers a month on business, careers, negotiation, psychology, and money. He has been profiled in a six-page spread on Fortune magazine alongside Warren Buffett. He's been seen on the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, NPR, Fox, you name it. His book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, which came out in 2009, became an instant Amazon number one bestseller, a New York Times bestseller. And get this, right? Ramit founded a website called growthlab.com. In addition to I Will Teach You to Be Rich, Growth Lab teaches you entrepreneurship. It teaches you how to get a web business going. And Growth Lab is so freaking beautiful as a site. Its content is so powerful that I frequently reference it for inspiration. Yes, me, Mindvalley. Mindvalley was the company that really created this whole sense of aesthetic and design in what used to be called the internet marketing industry. And I would all take inspiration from Growth Lab because of Ramit's attention to detail. Another thing I appreciate about this guy. And of course, final thing I want to say about Ramit, he recently got married to his partner, Cassandra, on July 28th. Ramit, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. I'm very excited to chat with you. Ramit, there's so much I could be covering with you. But one of the things I really love about you is how authentic and real you are. And I'd love for you to stop before we get into, you know, the powerful tips that I'm sure you're going to share with us on investing and planning for our income. I want to hear your story. How did you get started? How did you have the balls to come up with a website called I Will Teach You To Be Rich while you were <laughs> a college kid? Okay, I'll take you back in time. So here I am. It's around 1999, 2000. I'm growing up in California. I come from a middle-class family, and my parents said, if you want to go to college, you have to get scholarships to pay for it. Now, of course, I'm Indian, so I'm going to college. And I sat around, and I think some people just think in a systems way. I love thinking of systems. Basically, I want to do more work up front, so I have to do less work later in life. And so I created this system to apply to about 65 scholarships. And I knew that I wanted to go to Stanford. I hadn't gotten in. 
but I wanted to apply to these scholarships. And so I did. I applied to 65 of them, and I ended up making enough to pay my way through undergrad and grad school at Stanford. So then I thought, wow, I'm really smart. I took some of that money and I invested it in the stock market. Remember, 1999, 2000. And I quickly realized I wasn't as smart as I thought because I lost half of that money right away. And that was when I started getting interested in money. I was studying psychology at Stanford and I started combining those two things. And I started realizing that the world wasn't what people were telling me. You kind of look around, you hear some old guy telling you all the things you can't do and you shouldn't do with your money. Don't spend money on lattes, they tell you. Don't buy any new clothes. Don't go on any vacation. In fact, just sit at home, pull down the shades, and in 3,000 years, maybe you'll have a few thousand bucks in compound interest. I said, I don't want to live like that. And so I started integrating money in psychology. I tried to teach my friends at Stanford this free money course. <laughs> Nobody really came. The year and a half of just emotional beatings because nobody wanted to come to an event about money. And I later realized we don't like to go to events about money because it makes us feel bad. And so I started a blog. And this is where looking back, I can't believe that I named it. I will teach you to be rich, but I did. I was sober when I picked the name and that was the genesis of the whole business and the book and the curriculum that I've created since then. And I know there's an interesting story in there about how you got the Wall Street Journal to talk about your blog. Yes. Remember, the reason I started the blog was not that I was some genius or that I wanted to sell ads. The reason I started the blog was that nobody would come to my free classes about personal finance. And I was like, I have something the world needs to hear and nobody's hearing it. So I started a blog. I figured, hey, maybe these lazy college kids will go to a blog instead of going to a free event. And for the first few months, not that many people read my site. You can go back and look, August 2004, nobody's reading it, there's no comments, but I just kept writing. But every month or two, I would send an email. I sent an email to the Wall Street Journal, you know, like a cocky college kid, I said, hey guys, you guys are all right, all right, you guys are the Wall Street Journal, but you don't know anything about young people. You really need to write for young people. And you know what, I'll do it. And I told them, I'll do it for free, but you really need to pay attention to young people. Predictably, they never replied. So I would email them every couple of months. Hey, here's an update. I spoke at this college and no reply. I just kept sending them a nice little email every so often. And then one day, about six months after I started my blog, I get an email out of the blue from an editor at the Wall Street Journal. And she says, we want to write an article about personal finance bloggers. And I still remember when that article went live, they linked to my site. And to this day, I'll never forget, I had 9,000 visitors that day, which was the biggest traffic day of my life until that point. And I just remember all that work finally paying off and letting me spread my message to the world. That is awesome. And you know what? What I like about that story is you don't just show that you were ballsy, which is an awesome, awesome attribute for everyone, right? Like you believed in yourself. But it also shows this really ridiculously impressive level of persistence. I mean, you applied to 60 scholarships before you got accepted into Stanford. You harassed the editors of the Wall Street Journal for six months before they finally replied. You know, there's an important lesson there, I think, for everyone who wants to do something major in the world. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. When I think back to my own life, I think everything that has been very meaningful has taken a ton of persistence. None of it came easy for me. 
How many times did you have to ask Cassandra to marry you before she said yes? <laughs> Vision, that's going to go on our next podcast about relationships. We'll have to dig into that one there. <laughs> okay, so there are so many topics, so many topics that we want to cover. But you said this book goes beyond money into a truly rich life. Define that. What do you mean by a rich life? I'm so glad that we're talking about this because most of the time when you hear people talking about money, the first place they start off with, it's almost always the same number, a million dollars. And if I were to ask anyone listening right now, what is rich to you? 80 to 85% of you would say the same thing. You'd think about it for a second because you never really thought about it. And then you'd probably say, mm, I guess a million bucks. But is it really? Because what if you live in Manhattan versus Kansas? Or what if you're 62 with four kids versus 22 and you're just out of college? Or what if you live in a different country? That's why I always say money is an important part of a rich life, but it's a small part. And there's so much more to a rich life beyond just money. The key here is that you define what a rich life means to you. My rich life is totally different than yours. So I'm gonna give you an example. I talked about how you hear these quote experts giving you advice about don't spend money on lattes. Hey, guess what? I like buying coffee. In fact, if I were to save three bucks a day, it doesn't even really add up to that much. So my rich life is being able to go and when I order at a restaurant, I never question ordering an appetizer. Or if I see two desserts that look great, I get them both. And it's so simple. We're talking about $10, $20, but that is a rich life. A rich life to me is about being able to take a taxi if I want to, whereas most of the time I take the subway. And so for me, money is important, but it's a small part. And I would say for me, the three parts that define a rich life impact. So I want to be spreading my message to a lot of people, which for example, I'm very grateful to be able to spread it to your readers and listeners vision relationships, having healthy relationships, and also being able to challenge myself, whether it's with a personal trainer or reading a new book that's a little challenging for me. Those are three components for me that are a rich life. They might be really different for you. You might not care about luxury cashmere sweaters. I love those. I might not care about expensive shampoo. You might love that. So I would challenge all of us to create our own definition of a rich life and spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Ooh, I like that. That is a quote. Now, what were the pivotal life decisions that you made? What are some of the important, difficult decisions you had to make to get to where you are today? One of the things that I remember my parents saying was this interesting phrase, and to this day, I'm not even sure why they said it, because they're not writers, but they would always say to us, you should write that up. Why don't you write that up? And we ended up writing things and submitting it to our local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee. And we were published a few times as teenagers. And I still remember what the real message they were teaching us was, you have something important to say and people should hear it. And I think that is a massively powerful message. I'm so thankful that my parents taught me that because it later transitioned into me learning about personal finance, getting really good at it, and then turning around and sharing it with the world. So that was one. I think the other one is persistence and systems. It's one thing to persist, like for example, to try to lose weight, count calories, whatever your course of action is, but it's another to build systems. And with my scholarships, I built a system. So by the end, it was taking me about an hour per scholarship to apply. And for a kid you know, in high school, that's a lot of money. It starts to add up. So those are two pivotal decisions. And then I think the third one was just 
looking beyond business and realizing that there's more to life than just business. And this one, I think for a lot of technical guys, particularly guys in my experience, you know, we're raised, get good grades, go to work at Google or start a business or whatever it is you want to do. And all that is great. I think you should do all those things if you want to. But there's also more to life than that. And that brings in, you know, finding really great relationships, whether it be an intimate partner or friends, being able to travel. Those kind of things have made a huge impact on my life. Mm, I like that. Now, one of the things you talk about, right, and I'd love for you to explain the difference between this, is the difference between the big win-focused person, growth mindset, and the minutiae focus person, scarcity mindset, when it comes to personal finance. <laughs> I love talking about this because there's so many similarities between health and money. So many. You hear people who, you know, maybe they're like 50 pounds overweight and they're asking about what supplement should I use? It's like, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't even be talking about supplements. You should be checking what you eat and you should be exercising more. That's the basics. That's the big win. That's 85% of what you need to do. Same thing in money. You know, you get a lot of people saying, what savings account should I use? It's like, you're in $40,000 of debt, or you're actually doing pretty well, but there's a lot more you could do. Let's focus on the big wins. If you get the big wins right, in terms of personal finance, you find a great job or a company, you negotiate your salary, you automate your investments, you never have to worry about the little minutiae like $3 lattes. So I'll give you two types of people. And for everybody listening, see which one you think you are and see if you can identify one of your friends or family members who fits the other bucket. So scarcity mentality. This is somebody who their first question is always about cost. How much does it cost? How much does it cost? Yeah, but how much does it cost? They brag about how little they paid for something. And they brag about how they can evade fees and taxes. That's a scarcity mindset. Now think of the opposite, an abundance mindset. They know that they can earn more. They don't worry about paying certain fees or taxes. They know that it's the price of doing business. And they know that their future is bigger than their past. That last one's really important. It means that you can look to creating new opportunities instead of simply protecting what you've already got. Oh, I like that. Abundant people know that their future is greater than their past. Beautiful quote. Now, you know, I really like the fact that you're touching on this because so many people out there, I've seen this particularly on finance shows on television, right? I really believe they're teaching people the wrong mindset, and that is that scarcity mindset. The best wealthiest people I know, they live wealthy. I remember attending a course once on wealth and the teacher of that program, well, he spoke about saving and everything else, but he spoke about this. He spoke about growth mindset. And he said, one of the things you got to do is take 10% of your income and put it in a luxury fund and use it to pamper yourself. Go for massages, use that fund if you have enough to stay in a five-star hotel. Treat yourself to the mindset of the rich. Would you agree with something like that? I think that's extremely fascinating. So let's talk about that. I think there's a lot of nuance here, and I'd love to cover it for a second. I believe that people can handle nuance, and I believe that they actually crave the honesty of hearing the details as opposed to kind of what you hear people squawking about on TV. 
which is why I don't watch any of those financial guys on TV. It's a joke. So let's talk about the nuance of that comment. First of all, most people listening could do a better job saving and investing. I'm willing to bet that if you gave me the average listener right now and gave me 15 minutes with their spending, I could find that they're probably not saving what they want to, and they're certainly not investing. Many of them would say, well, how do I pick stocks? You know, there's a lot of fear around that. So they could start there. Those are their big wins, is to automate their money so that every month, spending less than one hour per month, they're automatically saving a certain percentage and they're automatically investing a certain percentage. Okay, that's the big win. After that, I completely agree that the psychology of money becomes critically important. And I want to share something. I wrote my book 10 years ago, and almost everything in that book has stood the test of time. The material's correct. The investment strategies continue to hold up, and they will continue to hold up for decades. But I neglected to include enough about the psychology of money. That's a big regret of mine. That's something that I want to fix in an updated edition. When you think about people, even the language they use, if they say things like, I can't afford that, I ask myself, if they really wanted to prioritize it, could they afford it? Of course. Almost always they could. But when you surround yourself with people who say to themselves, like people say on Twitter, oh, there's no way for me to pay off my loans, or geopolitics means that I can never get out of debt, well, guess what? You're surrounding yourself with people like that. You're normalizing it. And you don't realize that there's a massive amount of people out there who are actually doing very well financially. So I think there's something to setting aside money for a premium or luxury experience and starting to slowly experience what that means. Of course, you need to have your money automated. You need to be paying off any debt, earning more, investing. But I do think that at a certain point, I have a lot of readers who are making very, very good money, six figures, sometimes seven figures, and they have their own psychology questions like, what's next? I made all this money. What do I do next? And that becomes a very exciting opportunity for people to be able to turn the page on their financial book. Okay, so let's say you are under 40, don't have any kids, not married. You could be a millennial. You could be anywhere from 25 to, let's say, 40 and you're kind of at the relatively early start of your life, right? You're in a decent career. What are some of the first steps you could take? Okay, the first thing is pick up a good book about money. And it doesn't even have to be mine, although I happen to recommend my book. But money is one of the most important things you will ever face throughout your life. In fact, if you talk to anyone 10 years older than you, just go ask them. The first thing you can do is go ask somebody 10 years older than you say, what do you wish you had done 10 years ago? Without a doubt, over 90% of people would say, I wish I had saved more money. So you don't need a crystal ball to look into the future. Just knock on the door of someone who's 10 years older. Next, get a book, spend a weekend, automate your money. Get rid of the misconceptions that many people have, which is that you have to be tracking every single penny you spend in Excel. That's not the way it works anymore, guys. You can automate this. You spend less than an hour a month. There's tons of tools and software, but that's not the point. You can Google right now. You need a budget. That's a great one. There's Mint, which people used to use a lot. Your bank and credit card automatically track everything for you. It's not the tool. That's like asking, how do I play tennis better? What racket do I need? Your racket doesn't matter. You could give Andre Agassi an old wooden racket from 1945. He'd still beat me, okay? It's not the tool. 
it's the mindset that I'm going to consciously decide where my money's going to go and I'm going to make some choices. So this is where you start to say, Hey, what do I want this year to look like? And I want to give a great example. I like to start with saying yes to spending on things instead of saying no. So let's say you want to take a trip, for example, to Malaysia. You want to have an amazing time. You want to stay at a great hotel and you want to do one of my favorite things to do when I travel, which is take a food tour. Okay. So ballpark, how much is that going to cost? Airfare, hotel, let's ballpark it. 5k, 10k, whatever the number is. So I start to say, okay, great. So that's 12 months away. I'm going to need to save roughly 400 bucks a month. Okay, great. How do I do that? Now using the systems that I talk about, you can take that money and automatically put it into a savings account, which is called your Malaysia vacation. You're not thinking about it every day. It's just happening automatically. But by the time you go to take that trip, everything's paid for and you can do it guilt free. I see. Now, I'm guessing that there are different models for saving, right? Because a trip to Malaysia, of course, is a relatively shorter term model. But what about the long term stuff? What about that house we might eventually want to buy a retirement fund? I love it. Okay, so I'm glad you asked that because I started saving for big purchases in my life long ago before I ever needed them. So I was saving for a wedding before I even met my wife. I was saving for an engagement ring before I ever met her and I was saving for trips. That's confidence. Well, I figured, look, given enough time, you know, I'll find the right person. I know, it's brilliant. Again, like I said, I love your positive optimism. (laughs) Go on. Well, your future is bigger than your past. That's what I told myself. But you know what's funny? I've given people this advice for a long, long time. And I remember I went on book tour and I was in Portland, Oregon. And I was at a bookstore. I still remember this young woman. She was in her 20s and she had bought my book. And she said, Ramit, I took your advice about creating a sub savings account for my wedding. And she's like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Feels really good to be saving. And I said, do you mind if I take a video? And this is 2009. I pulled out one of those snap cameras or flip cameras, whatever it's called. And she got really uncomfortable, visibly uncomfortable. And I could notice it. And I said, you know, hey, I hope you don't mind, but I noticed you're really uncomfortable. I don't have to record, but out of curiosity, why? And she said, well, I don't want to be on camera because it would be really weird. I said, why? She said, because I haven't even met my partner yet. So she was saving for a wedding she would eventually have with a partner she hadn't met. And she thought it was weird. I think it's weird the way 99% of people go about it, which is they know that they're going to get married. We know the average age when people get married. We know the average cost. And still we deny that we're going to have to pay for it. You know you're going to buy a house. You know you're probably going to have kids. You know your parents are going to pass away someday. And so instead of denying it, let's just plan for it. Let's acknowledge it. Let's have those uncomfortable conversations. And guess what? The only people who think it's weird are other people. I don't care what other people think. I want to create my rich life. And that's why I started saving for these predictable life events way before they ever happened. Oh, I love that. That's a really, really powerful idea. Now, what about investments, right? Now, we're talking stocks, we're talking property, we're talking crypto. Those are three things that I know people have a ton of questions about. I have a friend who right at the end of September put a large chunk of his savings in the stock market, right? Because it had been rising for 10 years. And then in October, everything was going fine. I remember he told me, Vision, this is so freaking cool. I just saw a 15% increase. And then November, things went 
crazy. And the U.S. stock market here just plummeted, biggest drop in 10 years. So what are your views on stock? Should we be putting anything in the stock market at this point? Yes. Let's start with your friend. I have the unfortunate opportunity to tell you that your friend will probably have very poor investment returns for his whole life. And it's not because he invested in the wrong thing. It's not that. It's his psychology. Let's just take a look at what your friend did. Everybody knows the phrase, buy low, sell high. Okay, everybody knows that. They don't understand what it means. They just repeat it like a parrot. What your friend did was he waited until the stock market was at an abnormal historical high. And he said, oh, every day on CNN.com, the stock market is hitting new records. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy high. Okay, so he did exactly what people are not supposed to do. But don't get me wrong. A lot of people are thinking, okay, well, I'll just wait till it goes down. Then I'll buy. Wrong. The truth is you don't know when it's going to go up and you don't know when it's going to go down. And you know who else doesn't know? Anybody on TV, any people on Wall Street, nobody knows. So the best thing you can do is to simply invest automatically and regularly every single month. Now, this is really disappointing to a lot of people because in other parts of life, if you spend time researching something, you get good at it. Oh, you learned how to get more fit or you learned how to learn a different language, you become good. That's not the case with investing. With investing, it doesn't matter if you're on Wall Street, you've been there 15, 20 years, you will not beat the market consistently over time. So if you're humble enough to acknowledge the math, which if you read a whole bunch of stuff, you can see that you cannot time the market. All you need to know is you should be investing automatically and regularly every single month. So what does that mean for people? If the market is low, if the market is high, makes no difference. You're continuing to invest every month in and out. And over time, that market tends to rise. And that is exactly what we've seen in the stock market. So even though the market's dropped 15, 20%, my money keeps going in. Even when it goes up, it keeps going in. And over time, it produces pretty massive returns. I remember reading about your story of 1999, you put some money in the stock market and you immediately lost like half of it, right? So in 1999, I had just graduated and I took $1,000 of my savings and I looked at two companies. One was Walmart and one was Amazon. And everyone was skeptical about Amazon. So I put my money in Walmart. I put $1,000 in Walmart. Now, 10 years later, that stock had hardly moved. Amazon had gone up like 13,000%. So do you have any tips for knowing what to put our money in? Okay, so this is a really funny example because this is a very counterintuitive lesson of this story. When I was in high school, I also had a little bit of money and I took it and I invested in three stocks. So the three stocks were JDSU, which is a telecom company, it's bankrupt, Excite at Home, internet company, bankrupt, and a little company called Amazon.com. So I did invest in it. And that little amount of money I invested has generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in return. Okay, now what's the key here? A lot of people, their first takeaway from this story is, wow, I need to pick the next Amazon.com. And that is the wrong lesson to take away from the story. That choice that I made of Amazon was pure luck. We could have flipped a coin vision and it would have been you investing in Amazon, not me. It has nothing to do with how smart I was because I was wrong two thirds of the time. It has nothing to do with how many books I read. That's irrelevant. It was pure luck. 
And this is one area of life that you reading more books does not make you a better investor. If anything, it makes you worse. So the big takeaway is don't invest in individual stocks. The average individual investor should not be picking stocks. That's not what investing is. And really, the average investor should pick something simple. It's called a target date fund. All it is is a fund where you tell them the target date that you're going to retire. Or for people who don't plan to retire, when you're going to be 55 or 65. And what happens is that fund is automatically diversified. It includes international, includes bonds, all kinds of stuff. And over time, it gets more conservative as you get older. That is all you need to focus on for investing. And the key thing you do is just put as much as you can into it as early as possible and regularly. I see. And you have a target date fund. Oh, yeah. I have a target date fund. That is where the bulk of my investments are in index and target date funds. They're low cost. They're diversified. And that's what generates returns. That's how real individual investors invest. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Now, I want to ask you about crypto because this is another category where we get a ton of questions. So I listened to a speaker talk about crypto and he made a killing in crypto. I know one guy who's a billionaire because he bought Bitcoin really, really, really early. So this is my story. I was going to invest in crypto and one of my friends, I had her over for dinner and she used to be married to Warren Buffett's son. So Mary Buffett was over and she said, are you crazy? Warren would never invest in crypto. And she advised me to look at some healthy blue chip type stocks like Apple instead, right? Now, me being me, I didn't take that at face value. So I completely stupidly ignored her advice. So three months later, there I am on Coinbase.com trying to put $15,000 in crypto. Now, fortunately, I couldn't get the account to work. I didn't end up making the purchase and I had a flight to board, so I forgot about it. And that saved me from losing a large chunk of that money because a mere couple of months later, Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else in crypto just started crashing powerfully. So many of my friends lost a ton of money. The question now is, do you advise crypto? Every time I hear some nut job telling me that I need to dump all my low-cost investments and put it all in crypto, I always ask him one question. I say, what does the rest of your portfolio look like? And do you know what they say to me? Their eyes glaze over. They don't even have a portfolio. This is what happened. I'll tell you the life cycle of a crypto quote investor. They have a fine job. They have a mediocre amount of savings, probably in credit card debt. They go on some subreddit like Bitcoin, and they hear some get rich quick. Oh, my cousin's nephew's son made $38,000 in one day. It's going to the moon. And then they take all their money and sometimes they borrow money to put it in Bitcoin. They know nothing about a diversified portfolio. In fact, they've even written me and said, ha, 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 LOL, enjoy your 7% returns. I'm going to the moon. These people are now bankrupt. Okay, they're nut jobs. <laughs> I'm not laughing at the bankruptcy. I'm laughing at the fact that you're so specific in the comment about heading to the moon. Because this is real. Because I've talked to thousands of these people. They email me. They hate me. But it doesn't matter to me. I love it because I get to share real investment. And Mary Buffett was 100% right. So here's the key. I want to add some nuance. All right. I'm not just going to sit here and shit all over Bitcoin investors, although 99% of them are scammers, charlatans, and ignoramuses. Damn, that's a strong statement. Well, it's facts. But let me say this. If you have a diversified portfolio, 
and you say, you know what, I'm going to take five or 10% of my investable money and I'm going to put it in a speculative investment. Could be Bitcoin, could be angel investments, could be your friend's bar in Brooklyn. If you want to do that, be my guest. In fact, I encourage it. You should have a little bit of fun with your money. But the key there is if you have a properly diversified portfolio. Of course, none of these people did. They took all their money, and in some cases, they even went into debt. They put 100 or 110% of their money into a speculative investment. The only reason that the majority of them did it was that they saw other people doing it, and they didn't want to miss out, and that is not investing. That is speculation, and I'll never let my readers do that. Okay, my job is to show them, to educate them, and also to protect them from the many charlatans out there. That's why I get really mad and I get very passionate about this Bitcoin movement. If you believe in it, fine. Take 5% of your investable money and put it in there. But you better have the rest of your life working out right before you go speculate. That's my take. Beautifully said. And you know, I want to make a confession here because I was wrong about you. Because I have so many friends who did succeed in Bitcoin. I also have friends who lost a ton of money in Bitcoin, but they don't talk about it much. So you tend to hear more about the success stories, right? And so when I was following you on Instagram and you were criticizing this whole Bitcoin craze, I was like, damn, Ramit Sethi's really old school. When is he gonna like start modernizing? And I apologize because I was wrong and you were right. And I'm so glad that I didn't end up putting any money in crypto. Well, thank you for saying that. And there's nothing wrong with trying new things, but there's nothing wrong with being sensible and reasonable over the long term. Right. So let's go on to this question. Property. I've heard multiple people, including Grant Cardone, said, don't put your money in property. What are your thoughts on this? Does this only apply to the U.S.? Okay, I can only speak to the U.S. because I know it intimately. I can't speak internationally, but I will say this. In America, there is the, quote, American dream. And the American dream typically includes buying a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. What nobody stops to ask themselves is who sold that dream? And for a lot of people, they don't realize that that dream is sold by one of the worst organizations and most unethical organizations on earth, which is the National Association of Realtors. Why do I say this? If you want to buy a house because you want to live somewhere for your kids and their school district, great. Be my guest. If you want to buy a house because you want to knock down part of it and customize it, be my guest. But most people believe that real estate is the best investment they can make. And what they don't realize is if they actually ran the numbers, they would discover that real estate has historically underperformed the stock market by a huge amount. Now, this is the craziest part because vision money is very counterintuitive. It's not obvious how some of these things work. I'm going to give you an example. I have a lot of people that write me, they'll say, Ramit, you're stupid. That's how they start their email. Ramit, you're so stupid. My mom bought her house in 1970 for $100,000 and she just sold it for $500,000. She made $400,000 of pure profit. And then of course they go on to tell me why I'm wrong and all this stuff. Now, it sounds logical, right? 500 minus 100, that's 400K, but that's wrong. What you don't factor in with that is, first of all, taxes, transaction fees, additional spending because you went and bought that new furniture, and a variety of other expenses. So that takes your return down in a massive way. 
The other thing you don't factor in is how much could your money have made if you put it in another investment? That's called opportunity cost. Most people, if they actually ran the numbers, would discover that they could have taken that same amount of money and they could have put it in the stock market in a diversified fund and made double, triple, oftentimes way more money. Now, people do not want to hear this because it goes against the American dream and their eyes just kind of glaze over. It's like telling someone something they've believed their whole life is not true. Look, you don't have to believe me. Go run the numbers. Go to the buy versus rent calculator and plug in the numbers. What I would say to people is there are reasons to buy a house that are non-financial. And in some cases, if you buy property, it can work out really well. Okay, a lot of people have bought in certain cities. It's done really well. But a lot of people have bought and have not done very well. So I've written about this. You can Google Ramit Sethi real estate. You can see me showing you the actual math and the stories of people who regret it. But Vishen, just as you said, people only talk about it when they do really well. The minute they lose money, they get really quiet. My job is not to convince you to invest in some fund. I have no financial interest in what you invest in. It doesn't matter to me. My job is to show you the truth and to say, hey, there's a lot of people who have a vested interest in getting you to do certain things, like buy a house. So run the numbers. This is the biggest purchase of your life. You should be certain about how the numbers work out before you go and drop hundreds of thousands of dollars on something. And if you follow that, I think you will always be led in the right direction. Fantastic. So thanks for talking about that. Stocks, crypto, and property. Now, what about some basic things that we could get started with? to simplify things, right? Let's talk about an unmarried person, no kids, making say 50K a year. How do you know how much should you be saving up for retirement? How much should you be allowed to spend on a more luxurious lifestyle? How much should you be setting aside for rent? What are the calculations, the metrics that you think the average person needs to be paying attention to? Okay, so this is a great question. I have some specific recommendations on what percentage of your money should be going towards fixed costs like rent, etc. But just like if you're trying to lose weight, you're going to hear a lot of advice telling you all the things you shouldn't eat. Okay, everyone's heard those. Don't eat this, don't eat that, carbs, this, that. I actually prefer to start a different way, which is to say, what should you put on your plate first? And the same is true with food. The same is true with money. This is the way that I like to think about it. At a bare minimum, you should be saving 10% of your money into a savings account. And that's going to be working towards, you know, a six-month emergency fund, maybe a wedding down payment or a house down payment, a variety of things like that. You should also be investing 10% of your money at a minimum. Saving is not where you make money. Investing is where you actually make a substantial amount of money. You can assume roughly a 7 to 8% return over the long term. Okay, that means your money is essentially doubling every 10 years or so. If you do just those two things right, the rest of life becomes a lot easier financially. Now, of course, if you want to retire early or you want to stay at these awesome hotels, great. You can save a little bit more or you can earn more. But as a basic rule of thumb, 10% to savings, 10% to investment, that's going to set you up right so that a year from now, you're going to look at your accounts and say, wow, this thing is really starting to add up now. Fantastic. I like that advice. That's a great way for someone to get started. Now, let's talk about some of your non-negotiable habits, because you come across as a guy who is really disciplined about how you live life. What are some of those disciplines? What are some of those non-negotiable habits that you 
hold yourself accountable to? Well, this is a good question. Uh, <laughs> I do have one, and that is working out with a trainer. I have a trainer. I work out with him four times a week and then one or two times on my own per week. The psychology behind that is, you know, we all have priorities in our life, but I believe if you show me someone's calendar and their spending plan, you can very clearly see what the actual priorities are. So for me, you know, I claimed that I prioritized health, but I wasn't actually spending as much time and money on it as other things. And so I hired a trainer and I work out and that's a non-negotiable. So my meetings flow around my training. As for the rest of it, I don't want to kind of suggest that I'm like this automaton or some robot with, you know, a calendar that's just regimented every 10 minutes. That's not the case. I think by having a few things right in life, like healthy relationships, healthy work, healthy training, I think that allows me to be a lot more flexible. So I would say that's probably my only non-negotiable I can think of. That's fantastic, Raman. So as we come to the end of this interview, any closing words? I have a fascinating story that I'd love to share, and I think it kind of suggests what people can do next. So I once asked people on my email list, I send emails almost every day. I have hundreds of thousands of readers. And I think if you join the newsletter from I Will Teach You To Be Rich, you'll kind of get to know a little bit more of how I integrate psychology and money. And I asked my readers, what is something that you claim is important, but you haven't actually done it? And I got back just thousands of responses. And I still remember this one woman's response. She said, I claim that I want to go for a run three times a week, but I never do. So I wrote her back and I said, why don't you go once a week? And she wrote back and she said, why would I do that? That doesn't change anything. That'll make no difference to me. And I thought to myself, wow, this is fascinating. This woman, she's being so honest and I appreciate her for that. She would rather dream about running three times a week than actually go for a run once a week. And so many of us would rather dream about being a millionaire than to start saving $100 a month and investing $100 a month. So my challenge to everyone here is this week, go get a small win under your belt. Go for a five-minute run. Or as my mentor BJ Fogg says, floss one tooth. doesn't even have to be all your teeth, just one tooth. Get a small win under your belt and ask yourself, whose advice do I want to follow? A lot of people that are confused, they're subscribed to like 10,000 emails. Get off those emails. Pick one person or two people you trust and follow everything they have to say. If you do that, I think you're going to see amazing results in your life. Ramit, that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I wish I had been following your work 10 years ago. I think I'd probably be a lot wealthier than I am right now. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Actually, you know what? Thank you for existing. It's so nice and refreshing to have a guy like you helping us navigate the complex world of money. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of this. I hope it's helpful to the people listening. And I just really appreciate the opportunity, Vishen. So folks, you know, we don't run ads on our podcast. We don't need to. But one of the things I love to do is to honor the authors who make time out of their busy schedule to be on this podcast. So I want to just tell you that if you are interested in going deeper in Ramit's work, check out his book. It's called, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And I'm going to read out the subheadline for that book. And I love the ballsiness here for those of you who are driving. It says, no guilt, no excuses, no BS, 
just a six-week program that works. Now, Ramit said this, if you follow the material in this book at a very basic level, it will generate hundreds of thousands of dollars for you. If you get aggressive, over a million. But even better, he says, it goes beyond money into a truly rich life. Now, the other thing I want to give a shout out to is Growth Lab. Go check out growthlab.com. That's Ramit's other business where he helps people get started with an online business. And again, there's so much crap out there, folks, but Growth Lab is at another level. It is so beautifully designed. I love the way he tells the stories of his clients and his customers. It's just overall high quality. He gives the whole industry like an elevated name. So go check that out. So guys, if you enjoyed this conversation with Ramit Sethi, go ahead and leave us a review. And in the review, mention Ramit's name. You can do this on iTunes or on any other podcast app. Our authors love hearing about how much you loved their wisdom. And then go to Amazon and buy I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It's a phenomenal book. And look, the 15 bucks you invest in this book, could be one of the singular best investments you make in yourself. So thank you again for joining us, Ramit. And guys, thank you for listening to the Mind Valley Podcast. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.